Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. When your dream job is to win baseball games with analytics, what else is there to do but co-found your own analytics startup? Meet Ben Stansel, co-founder of Mode Analytics and now field CTO for ThoughtSpot. In this episode, Ben shares his thoughts on who wants to use data to solve problems and who just wants data to validate an opinion. He brings unique perspectives to how data excellence can be proliferated through an organization, whether shadow IT is a nuisance or a guidepost, and how large language models will influence the future of data. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Ben, welcome to the Data Chief. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right, Ben, some will be watching this on video. I love your hat. (laughs) So it's a Braves hat for those who can't see. This is being recorded the afternoon before game three of the Braves Phillies NLDS series. Uh, So I am currently stressed. So yeah, I, you know, go Braves in three hours. (laughs) Yes, but that's not just any hat. That is a championship hat. It is. So is that 1995? I'm trying to say. No, it's it's, it's 2021. So they they won in 2021. There's this thing that happens uh, after, if you like watch like a championship sporting event, like the first commercial after the game is over is always this like buy a commemorative issue t-shirt or whatever hat or these sorts of things. And this is the first championship of like a team that, that I have rooted for was the first time a team I've rooted for is championship. I won a championship uh, basically since I was, since I was like five or six. And um, I always thought those commercials were ridiculous. I'm like, who in the world buys this stuff? And immediately after the Braves won, there was one of those commercials. And I am like, I am on that site. I am buying five or six things. Um, And so this hat was one of those, you know, I bought it 30 minutes after they won, very much driven by a well-timed commercial. Oh, love it. Love it. So I feel like I should ask you, are you, where are you joining us from? Is it, are you going to the game tonight or are you back in Brooklyn now? I am in Brooklyn. Though actually, I hadn't thought about that. It's in it's in Philly. Uh, I guess I I am an hour yeah. and a half from there. I could have made the trip. I've had a bad luck, a string of bad luck going to sort of major sporting events of the teams I root for. Uh, so part of me is afraid to do it. But I feel like if they make it a little further, I may I may actually attempt to make the trip. But I'm in I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, yeah, definitely you have to go. So this is where I'm thinking. Sometimes I feel like you and I are so different. But yet we share some similarities. So Packers, of course, I like buy their stuff after every championship or one of my family members does. And I I read your blogs. We've been in this space. Uh, You I've been in it longer, but you've been in it earlier in your career, I would say. So we have a passion for data and analytics, but we both started with humble beginnings in this space. Take us back to your early days in the data and analytics space? Yeah. So I started in, in college. I did math and economics. I was close to doing sort of econ grad school, doing the econ PhD world, all those kinds of things. I came 
uh, sort of a, a whisper away from, from doing one of those programs. After school, I ended up, so I didn't do one of those programs, but after, after undergrad, I ended up working for a think tank in Washington, D.C. that was focused on foreign policy and, and sort of economic, foreign policy and economic policy are pretty tied together. And so it was like, we do economic policy research. That was my area of focus. And it was in effect an analytics job. Uh, it wasn't framed as that. It, nobody would have thought of themselves as, as that at the time. But the job was there are business problems. In these cases, rather than business problems, they are political problems. They are macroeconomic problems. You know, I was there in the late 2000s. So it was right after the financial crisis and all of sort of the reverberations that happened after that. So we would look at these problems. We would go look at a bunch of data. The data was not, you know, data that companies collected. It was data that was provided by the World Bank and the IMF and various official statistics, uh, economic statistics that you would get from, from tons of different sources. You would do analysis on it, and then you would make some recommendation. Uh, and the recommendation was policymakers should do X, Y, or Z, or whatever the case was. Essentially, that's that's a job as an analyst, uh, where you have some problem, you have data, you're yeah. trying to make some recommendation, all those sorts of things. The difference was it was the the people who were our customers uh, were not paying for us. They were like members of Congress and the Fed. And we were basically a think tank that does this and sort of throws reports at those folks and hopes that they read them. They largely don't. And so as a 20-something-year-old, uh, it was somewhat frustrating to spend a bunch of time writing things about, here's what the Fed should do, knowing full well that Ben Bernanke did not care uh, what you thought the Fed should do, nor should he. And so I ended up it's a sort of job that most people have sort of early in their careers and then go off either to grad school or, or something else. In my case, I, I then moved to San Francisco and got a job as a as a data analyst at a startup. Um, again, doing actually kind of structurally similar work, uh, except instead of solving, you know, sort of issues of real importance or pretending to solve issues of real importance, we very much did solve issues about getting people to click on marketing emails. Um, and so, you know, a much smaller pond, but we were listened to and did the same sort of analysis there. So it was it was that sort of how I found myself in in that world. Yeah. So a couple things to parse there. So maybe Ben Bernanke didn't read your reports, but as I also spent some time with the IMF years, years, years ago, they do read the analyses, but maybe it's the filtering of what's important that gets watered down. So I feel like I should ask. Um, so this is like the 2012 timeframe, I think. Mm -hmm. What BI tool or what analytics tool were you using then? I was at the think tank from 2009 to 2012. We used Excel. I mostly was okay. like, you know, you, you would you would <laughs> export stuff from from the IMS data portal or the World Bank's data portal or you know whatever random. There are various European statistical agencies that were a huge pain. Export things from those, mostly use it in Excel, kind of play around with it and do a bunch of pivot tables and V lookups. I knew some R from college. I had I had written some R in college. And so I like attempted to do some things in R, basic statistical analysis. But most of it was do stuff in Excel, make charts in Excel, take screenshots of those charts in Excel, and then stick them in uh, the kind of publications that we would write about. You know, here's a lot of the stuff at the time was European debt crisis, uh, stuff in Greece, things like that. So, you know, here's yeah. what the ECB should be doing about making sure that the entire European economy doesn't implode. So, but yeah, it was, it was Excel. Our, our by far primary tool of choice was Excel. Okay. And so already I see the differences in time. Um, having started 20 years prior to you, it was Lotus one, two, three, and focus on the mainframe. So you started in tech when already we would say 
BI and analytics was definitely mainstream, but now you're at now you're at Yammer. And for those mm-hmm. who are not familiar with Yammer, tell us a little bit about that organization and your team there. So I joined Yammer. It was a large startup at that point. I think I was like employee two fifty or so. Uh, I joined the data team. The data team was, I want to say, we were about ten when I joined, maybe eight. Um, half of those folks were analysts and half of them were data engineers. I was on the analyst side. Uh, we were responsible for sitting alongside folks in the business and helping them make decisions, essentially. The way that it worked was we didn't, it wasn't like a BI team. It was the product managers wanted to do A-B tests. They wanted to understand how people were using the product. And so we would work with them to try to help them understand those sorts of things. Yammer, the product that Yammer built was a it was essentially Facebook at work or whatever that product is called prior to that product existing. It was very similarly, like the UI was very similar to Facebook's. Um, it was as though you're in, all of your friends in Facebook are your coworkers and those are the only friends you have. And so you have this kind of like closed off network where people can use a Facebook-like interface of, of messages and threads and things like that that are all kind of in feeds to communicate instead of, instead of email. And so one of the things that that company sort of the the ethos behind that company was it was very much in this kind of consumerization of IT trend. It was one of the early stage companies there. We were trying to sell to end users, not to IT, trying to build sort of user or, or consumer grade products. And so part of that was also mimicking the way that those products got built at the time. And so this was early 2010s, things like Facebook's data science team and A-B testing and all that kind of stuff was was becoming very much in vogue. And so that was the stuff that we did was we were trying to be, all right, how do we drive virality? How do we drive things like DAUs over MAUs, which was a Facebook metric that was very like popularized at the time, user retention, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we were responsible basically for measuring those things and then for helping things like the product team think about, all right, how do we you know, run A-B tests to increase the amount of activity that people are, are engaging in in the product? Um, or how do we help? the customer success team, not just to analyze like, hey, how are we selling new deals, but, or existing deals, but like, how are people using the product? How are your customers, you know, are they engaged? Are they logging in every day? Are they posting more messages? That kind of stuff. And so that was, our focus was mostly like measuring user activity and then trying to translate that into to making better decisions about how to, to build or sell the product. Yeah. So this makes sense to me then. So you cut your teeth in the data and analytics space, really in a digital company. You Mm -hmm. didn't have any of this, let's say, historical legacy operational systems. You really had visibility into the digital interactions. And then at Mode, as both the co-founder and CTO, for sure, one of the hallmarks of Mode's customer base is digital natives. Mm -hmm. So as you think about how you have worked both as an operator in one of these companies, and then as an advisor to some of these digital natives, you've described a way of working between the data teams mm-hmm. and business teams or people who have questions. Paint a picture for us. What, like, what's an ideal operating state? To your point, that, that is very much the kind of companies that we worked with. That was what Yammer was. It is what Mode was. It was what Mode, most of Mode's customers were. You know, Yammer, it was, it was a a bit more of a transition where we were using, we had our own data, like our own data centers. We were running the product in 
and racks that that Yammer hosted, like we were buying database software in a box and running it in our own our own servers. So it wasn't it wasn't the world today, but it was certainly a world where the product was well instrumented. And we knew how many people were using it and what they were doing. Um, whereas Yammer was eventually bought by Microsoft, and like one of the things that we went to when we got to Microsoft, we asked them how many people were using O365, which was a at that time relatively early cloud based like Google uh, Suite competitor. It was you know Word and the cloud and they didn't know they were like we yeah. can't actually cancel count that like we have not instrumented the product in that sort of way and to us that was kind of shocking um and to to microsoft they were like we know how many people buy it and it's a lot uh we don't know how many people use it but who cares they pay us a lot of money so yeah so i was very much in the world of, like people cared about things like product <laughs> analytics and, and trackable stuff to your question of, of like ideal state i think a lot of it is around the ways that people view the data team and like what it is they came to us for we wanted to be business partners. We wanted to be involve us early in the decisions you're trying to make. Give us a seat at the table when you are trying to figure out where do we host our next conference? We don't want you to come to us and like ask us a very basic question of like, how many users do we have in different cities in America? And give us that list and we'll go make a decision with it. We want you to come to us and be like, we're trying to think about how to host a conference. Can you help us be a partner with that? Where we may eventually tell you where we have users or which cities we have the most users in. But we're trying to solve that problem together where we understand the context of the data, you understand the business, things like that. So we wanted to very much be this like kind of partnership model instead of a, a service model of you give us a bunch of tickets for data requests or dashboard requests and, and those sorts of things. The other thing that, we, that I think worked very well for that team was we were pretty diligent about not just cranking out dashboards and metrics and reports. We had a handful of core metrics that were driving the business. We had things like the number of engaged users, the amount of revenue, the number of people who are signing up every day, but there were only five or six of those things. And if you wanted something that wasn't just like a metric like that cut by some other dimension, then we were there to try to answer the question and try to help solve a problem. It wasn't just, oh, somebody else needs a new metric. Let's crank out a new dashboard. And now we have a thousand dashboards that everybody's looking at different things. We were very sort of like deliberate about the places where we said, this is a, a longstanding data asset that people will rely on. And this is a, a place where our job is to come and try to help and, and make decisions. And so I think that those were the two things really that, that worked well for us was it was a focus on, on again, kind of this partnership type of model and to not seeing ourselves as like just delivering assets, but seeing ourselves as, no, we would want to just sit alongside you and, and then hope we run into, we find better outcomes together where that outcome doesn't necessarily need to be like, we give you a thing that you now have and you use it's. You know, as long as you make a good decision, we're happy. Yeah. And I think about the differences between digital natives and let's mm -hmm. say large enterprise customers pick, pick, you know, big insurer X or big bank Y. And everyone would, would agree they want this partnership model, but sometimes it's the tech debt and legacy processes, why it's made that hard. And I like this quote, you recently hosted a great data debate, data pa panel about data teams. And the people from Jasper AI were talking about how the data teams like being more creative versus simply responding to a Slack request mm -hmm. on their data team channel. And I think, okay, a Slack request, at least there's back and forth. Let's go even worse in a large enterprise you're entering a JIRA ticket or something like that saying, can you add this field or build this report? So is it just the differences in tech debt 
Or do you think it's skills and mindset that holds large enterprises back? It's probably some of both and not skills and mindset to me in a way of it's like the folks can't do it. It's more of just an assumption of what it's for. And so like an analogy that I've used with this before is recruiting. Coming into to mode, I hadn't worked a lot with recruiting teams, kind of viewed it as like it's a service function for when we want to hire a role. We say we want to hire this role and they go figure out a lot of the mechanics of like, great, we'll find you a bunch of candidates and then you interview them and that sort of stuff. And there are some folks that I'm sure use recruiting in that kind of way. But then you work with someone who's a really good recruiter and you realize like that's a terrible way to use recruiting. That yes, the part of it is like you say, hey, we need to hire a thing and they will help you find that. But a lot of it is like, you'll say, hey, we need to hire for this role. And they're like, well, actually, why do you need to hire for that role? Like, what's your future hiring plans look like? What are the other roles you want to look for? There might be different ways to configure this. What's the right level of seniority? We're going to show you some candidates and do you think those are the right ones? No, they're not. Okay, we'll figure out something different. They'll help you with the process. They'll help you craft better interview questions. They'll help you make sure you're doing that stuff right. They'll help you with the offers and making sure you're hiring the people you want. It's not very much not just like, bring me candidates and then I'll figure it out. It's that they they are there to build the team with you and, and they will make the team better if you allow them to, to like play a bigger role in that. And so I think my mindset, I didn't have that mindset until I worked with someone who was a great recruiter and, and realized that's what great recruiters are capable of. And I suspect that a lot of like some of the enterprise mindset is more of, well, we've always worked with data teams in this way. That's just our assumption of what they're largely for is because we want to be able to, you know, we need data, we need dashboards, we need requests, those sorts of things. And then once you work with a couple that that are trying to do these things in other ways, you know, you start to see, oh, this is a, a different way of doing it. The other side, I would say that the other, but there is a there is a, a some some problems there on like the way they think data teams work here too. This is very much a choice. Do do it however you want. One of the questions that that I remember asking kind of early in Mode's arc basically was like, what is the ideal way to filter out who we think would be a good Mode customer versus a lousy Mode customer? Not necessarily something we can identify through ads, but like, what is the thing that we think is the best filter? And one of the answers we got to that was like ambition, was essentially do data teams want to be like Bridget and Sarah Mode that you described where they want to be at the table? Or are they like, I want to get asked as few questions as possible. I don't want to get bothered and I want to go home. And that's perfectly fine. Like that is your, your approach. And you're like, you want, you see the job is, is I like manage mode support tickets for a long time. I did not want to be bothered. My ideal was like, I get no support tickets. That was the best day. And there are some data teams I suspect who operate that way too. Like the best days are we get no requests. Nobody bothers us. We don't have to worry about doing this stuff that is stressful and hard. And so I think like, those folks tend to be the ones that, yeah, they're like, okay, CS is reporting. We want to give you the reporting so you don't bother to ask us questions. There's other folks who are like, no, we, we are coming to you being like, please ask us stuff, involve us, make us like, give us the hard things because we want to, to be the Bridgets and Sarah Moe's and have our seats at the table that, that we're involved in those data decisions rather than just like, please don't, the less you bother us, the better. Yeah. And so that's interest, an interesting psychographic. So ambition and I do think um, there's this thing that relates a little bit to skill sets that if somebody is risk averse, they want everything documented, kind of a CYA. Well, here's what you asked me for. So I built to that. Mm-hmm. And I think about one person that I worked with in a large uh, public sector org. And he said, Cindy, if I actually do my job really well, I will get a failing grade because I am measured on the widgets produced, the dashboards produced, which is the second thing you said Mm -hmm. should never be done. So I almost wonder if it's 
if it is kind of a, an evolving skill set and operating model. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of, there, there's, a, there's a number of angles that to me where one is like, well, if I, if someone asks me a question, I just answer the question, I'm safe. As in that I, I did the thing I was asked. Whereas if I like kind of go rogue or like really push on the question or challenge the question or try to get involved more, it's like, I, yeah, that's, that requires taking some risk. And, and some organizations are okay with that. And some organizations like, like this person you were talking to probably punish that. Not necessarily because they like, they want to punish risk taking, but because there's just like a culture there that, that has those sorts of, that's sort of the structure of it. The other thing is, I think there's also an angle to that. This is a little bit more esoteric, I guess, but an angle to that around, around data generally, where there are some organizations that use it very much as a, as a CYA type of thing where I'm an executive, I have to make a decision. I want data that supports my decision. Therefore, if the decision goes wrong, I can kind of be like, well, that was the right thing to do because the data said to do it. Similarly for data folks, there's like a, I don't want to actually be involved in the decision. I just want to give you something that, that helps you do what you need to do. And then that way, like if the decision doesn't work out, I was just telling you the numbers, like you can't, can't blame me. I don't know. In a lot of this, there's like courage ultimately that is needed in making a decision that you have to own. And I think data can to some degree be a punt where it's like, if you make a data driven decision, nobody made the decision. The data made the decision. There is like an abstraction there of who was actually responsible for it. It was like, well, the numbers said this was the right thing to do. We just did what the numbers told us. And so I think like there is some desire for data in that way of we're trying to do this to, to just have cover for any decision we make where ultimately if it goes well, we'll say, yes, obviously we made that decision. If it goes poorly, we can say like, well, we followed what the data told us to do. Okay. Wow. And see, Ben, see, I didn't think you and I would be talking about data culture, but this is really what data culture is. If you've already made the decision and it's CYA, then you're going to cherry pick your data. Yeah. You're going to look for you know, confirmation bias and, and ignore the data that contradicts your decision. So there, there's so much to unpack there, but two things you already said, focus on the business value and the question being asked really, and not focusing on the widgets, looking at the personality or incentives here? Are you ambitious? Are you risk averse? Another question a lot of people ask me about is what about centralized or decentralized? Mm -hmm. This is like, yeah, this is like the, the, the classic question about data teams. My view of it is that it's, it's kind of has to be some of both that, that there's, you know, there's like this hub and spoke world. And I think that's probably the best one and in a small company. Just centralize it because it's like you don't have that many people. Fine, have two people do the whole thing. That's kind of the only way to do it. And it like super huge companies. I don't think there are things like data mesh concepts, which I think make sense when you have a company that is effectively 10 different companies under one holding company. Like if you are, if you are Walmart, there isn't one company in Walmart, there's 30. And so in that sense, yes, you would have 30 centralized data teams, but those things are effectively different companies. But within a company that's say a thousand people, I think you have to have some like centralized infrastructure, some centralized like governance around making sure that the way you're thinking about how you ingest data and store it and distribute it out to the organization is consistent, um, that you don't have a bunch of teams sort of choosing their own tools and choosing their own way of doing things. And everybody is kind of just off figuring like this kind of somebody at the, the webinar you mentioned, mentioned these kind of like shadow tools. And I think if you don't have any kind of centralization, you get tons and tons of shadow tools. And that like is just kind of chaos. But 
there is, I think, data folks who aren't connected to the business that they're making end up not being that useful. Like they need to understand that context. And so I think having sort of a central team that is responsible for infrastructure and tooling and all that kind of stuff makes sense. But I think the analysts, especially a company of a thousand or more people are best. They are focused on this problem. They're there to understand really deeply what it is that business function is trying to do. They use the centralized tools, but they're, they are meant to be experts to some degree in the function that they work, not their skill set is partly that function, not just like, I know how to write a SQL query or whatever. Okay. Well, you use the word shadow tools and it always makes me cringe a little bit because it's shadow IT. Now it's the people and and I'm a classic shadow IT. The IT hated me until I joined them and then overnight the business hated me. So let's talk about these shadow tools, but I would like to call them as where the business wants to go. They're brought in for a reason Clearly, the, let's say, approved tools are not solving every problem. So why do we call them shadow? Is, is it really, this should be your prototyping, and then they become blessed and supported? Why do we call them shadow? My answer to that is because th- th- they end up not being traceable, not traceable in like an IT sense of someone comes along with an audit and is like, we got to have, you know, all this stuff under whatever kind of big brothery purview kind of deal. It's not that it's stuff gets lost and is hard to share. And an example of this would be one of the people that mentioned in the, in this webinar, like amplitude, mixed panel, Google analytics type of type of behavioral tracking or, or marketing site tracking tools that show users and things like that become a kind of popular version of these tools. I think the, the thing that happens is you will have a central, this is our metric that is, this is how we count number of people are using the product or the number of customers or whatever. And then there, the shadow tool or whatever the other tool is that somebody implemented will often say something different. And so what ends up happening is you spend all this time just trying to figure out like, which one do you trust? Who's right? Everybody has their different perspective. They're all kind of like looking at a world that doesn't quite look the same. And that's very disorienting. And that ends up making everybody not trust each other. And it just ends up we're being like, well, they think one thing, we think another thing. To some degree, we can't work together. They don't want to give up that tool. So they're going to just think that like, it, it creates all of these weird conflicts. And so that to me is the, the problem with it. It's not, it's not like a, the thing is ungoverned in the sense of, you know, IT needs to have some central control over everything. It's that it's really hard to make them consistent. And that lack, like the lack of consistency in, in anything to do with data is, is can often kind of be fatal in people actually having any real trust in what's going on. Like, yes, the, the, this thing happens all the time of an exec will look at Google analytics the number will be off by a hundred versus some other dashboard. It'll be like, this one says 8,336. And this one says 8,236. Does the hundred make a difference at all? No. But the fact that they don't match is very disorienting. And suddenly you're like, I don't trust any of it. And so I think like, that's the danger is you just end up being like, I don't know what to trust. Nothing here makes any sense. We got to make decisions without any of this stuff because all of it's unreliable. Yeah. And so maybe, I mean, not to use a play on words, but is this that we have different ways of working, different modes of working where we want both the agility, but we also want the trust? Yeah, basically. I like that. That's probably as good a way to characterize it as any is like to your point of like what what's wrong with the tool that somebody will go and pick up one of these shadow things. Like clearly there is something that's a behavior that should be like people is doing people are doing for a reason. And I think you're right that like it, it would be wrong to be like, well, just don't do it. It's like, well, clearly you don't like what you have. Like we should figure out what you don't like about what you have. And I suspect a lot of it is that is, well, there's something about it that's too rigid. It doesn't quite work the way I work. 
Um, I was talking to someone yesterday about about BI specifically, but I think this applies across this kind of any any way that people interact with data. It's a very kind of preference driven thing where it's really hard to have like one central tool that does everything currently because everybody has these different modes of wanting to interact with it. There, there is a, a sense of just like stylistic preference there that some people really like. They're used to Excel. They just want to be like, that's the place where they're comfortable and everything else feels, feels unnatural. And some people really like Tableau and some people really like ThoughtSpot and some people really like Mode. Some people really like Amplitude. And some of that is the functionality and features in the tool. And some of it's just like, I like BMWs and somebody else likes Audis and somebody else likes Fords and somebody else likes trucks and somebody else likes sports cars. Like, you know, uh, th th that is partly just a, a preference of like the things that you like and you're comfortable in. And so I, I think that to some degree, that is what's happening here as people choose the things that just like, it's a, it's a personal preference. Yeah, maybe. I mean, for sure, sometimes there might be personal preference, but I would say it's also uh, capabilities. So it might be that if I stay in an operational system like Google Analytics, I don't have all the data that I want in there. I don't have who authored a blog maybe mm -hmm. to look at blog readership. And so I'm going to want to mash it together with other data. And that leads me into an analytics platform. And maybe I actually don't even want to be in the BI tool. I want to be in Slack or I want to be in a spreadsheet because I'm creating formulas that or macros that I'm better at and the platform doesn't al allow it. So I think um, there might be some personal preference and it might be based on past experiences and knowledge, but I also think maybe it's the capabilities and we need to meet the user where they are. So is it, and, and you actually wrote about this, you talked about how <laughs> our 72 attempts to redefine BI, we still haven't broken the dashboarding barrier. So is it that historically everyone has tried to go just for a one size fits all when we really need something more adaptable or multimodal, let's say? Certainly to me, it's the latter. And that's kind of to your point of, of, of both capabilities and, and the point about preferences is like, there is a tendency when you build a tool, there's a tendency you figure out one thing that works really well, and then you try to apply that to a bunch of other things. And so like take Slack, for instance, Slack is essentially a chat app. Like it is, it is structurally very similar to something like HipChat or any other kind of like just chat app. Everything that Slack does is oriented around like chat paradigm. It's like, oh, we want to integrate reminders. Well, the reminders that come in through chat, we want to integrate ways to interact with other applications. It's all chat-based. Like the whole thing is kind of like Slack is chat. And so everything gets sort of shoehorned into a chat paradigm in some way. And I think that's true for like data tools where you do something where you do visualization really well. Okay. We, we are focused on visualization. You do advanced analytics and code first stuff really well. You're focused on that. You do AI stuff really well. You focus on that. That's fine. But I think what ends up happening is like, to your point, What's actually better is you need all these different modes of actually working. Sometimes you want visualization. Sometimes you want code. Sometimes you want something that's more AI conversational based. Sometimes you probably want spreadsheets. Sometimes like there's all these different ways of interacting with it. Part of that is, is a functionality thing. Part of it's a preference thing. But to try to say, oh, we're really good at spreadsheets. Everything is going to be a spreadsheet. We have to you build everything on top of the spreadsheet paradigm. I think that that to some degree misses the the point, which is like sometimes you need a thing that is not a spreadsheet. And if you try to shoehorn functionality into a spreadsheet that doesn't quite fit, it's going to feel frustrating to people. Some people might like it because they're just obsessed with spreadsheets. But most of the time, people are going to be like, ah, this fits better than something else. And like I overuse analogies, but but it's like a car to me where 
there is no yeah. such thing as a one size fits all car. Like you gotta, some people are gonna have, there's a reason why you sometimes need a truck. And part of that yes. is gonna be preference that I, I am from the South. A lot of people buy trucks because they wanna drive around in trucks. Um, that has nothing to do with the fact that it's a pickup truck. But sometimes you actually got to put stuff in the back of it. And like, in that case, you need a truck and attempting to be like, well, we're going to make a, a sedan with a really big trunk. You could kind of convince yourself that's like a truck, but it's not really. And it makes for a pretty bad truck. And so it's like, sometimes you just got to have the truck. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think in that case, like the multimodal thing is the only real solution here because you're not going to make one car that solves every problem. Yeah. Your truck is great on the beach and great in the snow. Uh, but my Ford Mustang is probably not. <laughs> it's good for getting me to the airport. So you brought up AI conversational interfaces. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about generative AI and large language models, whichever. I'm not going to, you know, focus on BART or GPT or yeah. whatever. But if you, if you think about how this will impact the industry and specifically the roles and skills mm -hmm. required, what's your take? Before that, do you have a Mustang? Do you actually have a Mustang? I, I do. I have a Ford Mach-E. Does it uh, not align right. with my image it or does. something? No, it does. <laughs> it, it fit. I was like, that actually seems, I could see that. Uh, uh, it's, it's my first e-car. I was a Mini Cooper before <laughs> with cool British flags on the side, but was it was like, the climate and, and, and it is better in the snow than the... Um, than the Mini Cooper. That's a, that's a real like <laughs> defection from like full British Mini Cooper to like full American Ford Mustang. Uh, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> but it's not a Tesla. Let's not go yeah, there. Right, right, How right, are we not, getting off track? Get, right, let's we, get back to Gen AI. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was the question? Roles, data roles and Gen AI. How do we, how do we manage yes. that or what happens? This is like just wild speculation. I have no idea, but but I, I my guess is that it becomes kind of like a handful of things that are similar-ish to the way that things get done today, but not entirely. One thing is there's like data engineering and analytics engineering, I think, like which is basically data prep. Like analytics engineering is essentially, yeah. you've got a bunch of messy data. Somebody needs to turn that into relatively clean data in like a way that is sane. Those things actually still seem very important. You know, there's everybody has their various quotes about this, about like AI is garbage with bad data, garbage in, garbage out. You know, the important thing is the data infrastructure, all that kind of stuff. I think that's true. And what ends up happening is like these sorts of data prep roles basically become data prep roles in part for AI models that already exists. You know, like if you are an ML engineer, somebody's going to have to build that stuff for you. But I think if everybody ends up using like gen AI type of tools, then what happens is it's just like, all right, we have a lot more work to be done to feed data into the vector databases that everybody eventually has so they can have their like company chatbot or whatever that, you know, is powering that stuff. So that stuff seems important. It might be structurally a little bit different, but sure, it seems like it's more or less the same. It's just, you're prepping it for a machine, not a, not an analyst as much. Yes. So do you think it will help their roles get rid of some of the drudgery and I'm sensing, are you having a wait and see approach or are you like, learn this and dive in now on the data engineering side i don't i think it basically doesn't change there like it's it is the same amount of drudgery good or bad as it is today in that it may be a little bit easier like say you have a whole bunch of messy data from a bunch of places say and like 
Salesforce. Salesforce is like a classic messy data source. It's a disaster. It's a bunch of data that people manually input that is all wrong and is all formatted in weird ways. And everybody redoes how they actually have like set up the way that they record sales and Salesforce every six months. And so you've got eight different versions of contracts and every sales rep has their weird quirk that they do it their particular way and somebody missed it and it got by various validations and it's all a mess. That doesn't really change with AI. Like maybe AI helps clean that up or like tells people something. I don't know. Maybe there's like a, a data cleanliness side, maybe. But for the analytics yeah. engineer or the data engineer, I think fundamentally it's like, all right, I got to turn this into something that can be made sense of by a machine or by a human. That work is to me more or less as drudgery or not drudgery today as it is tomorrow. The, the only difference there is maybe like the machines have a clearer sense of what it needs to look like. The machine to human translation is hard because you got to go talk to a bunch of humans and be like, what do you want? And they're like, we don't know. We haven't figured that out. We have, we like different things. Um, and that's like a frustrating way to work. If you're just like, I need to make this format work for the database that is receiving it, for the vector database that's receiving it so that an AI model can train it and all, all that sort of stuff. You have a very clear input where the machine wants it in a very precise way. And so it's like a little easier than, than trying to figure out like what the indecisive human that can't decide exactly how they like it wants. So maybe that's a little easier. Yeah. Wait and see. I, I do think it's kind of a wait and see. Like, honestly, I think that that if you are a, a person wanting to learn these sort of skills, I think it's like good probably to be aware of the technology that's where what things are and stuff like that, kind of where things are, you know, just be read up on it. But I don't know that that like prompt engineering, is it worth it to go like become a great prompt engineer? I'm like, I don't really think so. I my view of that is it's like when Google first started getting big or search started getting big, you could have made the case that the future of everybody's lives is going to be learning how to like write good Google searches that are knowing like conditional searches and Booleans and weird, like how to do that kind of like include this, don't include, like there is all of that kind of search language that back, I probably was, when I was in high school, people were like, you need to learn how to do this. So you can search when you search for this and you say, exclude that. Um, and that's how you're going to search. And it's like, nah, you didn't, you didn't need to learn that. Like what ended up happening was Google just got really good. And, and the search skills was more of like a detective sleuthing skill, not a, the mechanics of how to do these sort of very particular things in Google skill. Like good Googlers are not people that know the, the exact syntax of weird Google searches. Good Googlers are the people who like have some spider sense about where to go looking for things. And I think like AI is probably going to be similar to that, where it's not the the crazy prompt engineers that you learn to say, like, imagine that you are this, that'll make it good. It's like you end up learning some of the next level kind of spider sense skills that we don't yet know what those look like. Okay. So Ben, I'm trying to figure out if we have to agree to disagree okay. on this point, or if I need to keep leading the witness here, because I think any data leader, business leader, and data professional who at least is not getting a handle on what's happening is already behind. If if they don't understand why GPT can't do basic math, or <laughs> if you ask Google Bard to write a proposal of funding for GPT, why it mm. won't answer that question and what a hallucination is, I, th I think you're behind. So maybe you don't have to go full prompt engineer, but are you saying they shouldn't be leaning into this and tracking the innovations that are happening in our space? Or what do you think? No, I, so th when I say like the people should be like read up on, I think that's, yeah. Like, you know what a hallucination is? And, and you know, when you, if you go to use chat GPT and you ask it something, you should be like aware that 
in the same way where it would be useful when Google first came out to be aware that sometimes things on the internet are not true. Uh, like, yeah, I think you should be aware of like the rough mechanics of how this thing works and, and stuff like that. I, my, my point of like going all in on it is there are lots of like LinkedIn and Twitter griffs for lack of a better word. that are like, if you don't know these 15 hacks about how to use chat GPT, you are going to be left behind. And I think that stuff is, is largely like in six months, those things will be totally different. And so yeah, it's good it's you like understand daily. Yeah. Understanding like how the technology works and what this thing might can do and remembering that it's there, honestly, of like, I have a, maybe this is helpful for me to do. Um, like we're at this event, for example, um, where we had to write you, this was a, a thought spot event. Um, we had to write a jingle and have a group of people seeing this jingle about, I don't remember what it was. And someone just was like, chat GPT, write me a jingle. And obviously that was way faster than us trying to like write a jingle ourselves. And it didn't really care what it said. And it's like, oh, that I didn't even occur to me to do that. I think it's very useful to be like up on it such that you have that in the top of your mind. They're like, oh, I can, I can ask it to do stuff. I can Google for this. I don't need to go look it up in a library, but it's less like to me, like, oh, you need to know the, the 15 tips that came out of various, you know, Twitter influencer on AI secrets. Like that to me is stuff that, that gets washed away pretty quick. Yeah. So before ThoughtSpot and Mode merged, I was reading one of your blogs and you said, all right, the 73rd attempt in the BI world will now be large language models. And the only interface that will let people get the answers fast enough and painlessly enough to break this cycle of dashboards mm -hmm. is natural language. So now um, you're part of the company that pioneered and patented this ability to, so before LLMs, it was somewhat natural. Now it's mm -hmm. even more natural. How do you feel about what you wrote several months ago? Does it still stand? Do you feel more or less strongly about that? I still believe it in the, I mean, I, I still believe that if, if we break that cycle, this is how we break it. That there is a world, like we have tried a bunch of different interfaces into like every BI tool, I guess, is essentially a way into asking, like writing a query with an interface that is not code. And there are, most of them present themselves as pivot tables. Most of them present themselves as drag a pill here, drag a pill here. And, and we will give you a table that is some pivot of the thing that you've asked for. Um, and this is, you know, MicroStrategy had an interface like this. Uh, Tableau has an interface like this. Looker had an interface like this. Mode built an interface like this. Um, this is like the, the way that people have kind of become accustomed to interacting with data is either spreadsheets or these kind of like pivot table, drag and droppy things. The thing to me that, and in some ways, like the, the real breakthrough to me of Tableau was they introduced a kind of visual way to explore data. Now, the, the interface was still the draggy droppy pivot table kind of style, but it was very much like, actually, you can do this with visualization too. Like you can think visually about what you're doing. And that was a, it was a very novel I mean, it wasn't novel in the sense that we'd done it before, but it, they were able to scale it in a way where it was like, actually, this is, we have spreadsheets and then we have visualizations. And that's a kind of a new paradigm of sorts to think about this stuff. Again, it was still draggy droppy pills into little X axis, Y axis, but there was something kind of new there. I think that, yeah, that, that like natural language is a similar shift. And we have now a new model of interacting with things. It doesn't have to be code. It doesn't have to be draggy droppy pills and pivot tables. We can just ask it a question. And Right now, the way like that is that is used as a way to get to the drag drop stuff. Like 
in ThoughtSpot and in Tableau, the the questions, the first version of that is, all right, we can shortcut the interface into actually doing that same drag and drop and stuff, which I think is the right move. I think that's smart. I think and that's one of the things I, I think that ThoughtSpot has done very well as they've approached it in that way, where they're not saying like, we're going to just magically go figure out some answer when you ask an arbitrary question. It's like, no, we're going to actually do this through the same types of interfaces that you would before. We're just going to put natural language on top of the interface that you're comfortable in. But I think over time, as that stuff gets good, and as we get better at figuring out, you know, the intent behind those questions and things like that, then you can start to ask like really novel questions that I think really do change uh, the way that people think about data. It's not just at that point to me an interaction model. It's like the entire way that you work becomes different. And again, I use the Google analogy a lot, but I think it's the similar to Google where Google may have started and when I was, you know, being taught how to use various query logic, it was like, this will replace a library. But like it very much doesn't replace it. Yes, it can replace a library, but because it got so good and so expansive, now it's just like it. you use it for things you would never even dream of using a library for. Like you could be on a call and Google 10 things about random conversations that you've had. Like you can't, people can't function in the world anymore without it. Not because they went to the library all the time, but because this information is so accessible. Now you'd like, you have so many different ways of using it that you wouldn't have conceived of before. And I think data in some ways is that where like, that's the real power of what this is is rather than it being like, oh, I'm going to be an easier way for me to build the dashboards I already built, which is a good starting point, it becomes, it is so accessible that I now use it in 100 places I wouldn't have conceived of even using it before because I can do it in 10 seconds. Yeah, and I think that gets back to, it's the interface, but it's got to be on all your data, all your relevant data. It can't be back on these on-premises, small subsets, extracted from 15 different systems and who knows which Mm -hmm. source is right. I do want to come back to mode a little bit, or really I'm picturing you being acquired. You're working for a cool startup. You get acquired, yay, um, by Microsoft. So it's 2013. And then you leave after Mm -hmm. not even a full two years. What made you want to either A, start a company or what was the problem you were trying to solve? So there's there's an answer there's an answer to like why we did it and then the sort of personal motivation. I think that we had built an internal tool at Yammer that was similar to Mode. Um, that was basically a query tool. It was a query editor uh, in a browser with charts on top. Like that was what it did. It was you write a query, you could stick a line chart on it, you could send the URL to somebody, and they would have the answer with the chart and the query, and they could look at it and ask you a question about it. And that was a tool that was very successful inside of Yammer. No, part of that was, again, because of the way that team was set up. And like, we just, it, it was a team built for the, the type of team that, or product built for the type of team that we were using. Uh, and so it worked, but it became very successful inside of Yammer. When we got bought by Microsoft, that, that tool actually became very successful inside of Microsoft as well. Um, and so we were like, oh, this thing actually seems to, there's something here. There were also a bunch of other companies that had built similar versions of it. So Uber had a version of it. Airbnb had a version. Facebook had a version. Spotify had a version. Pinterest had a version. Everybody had these, like LinkedIn, all of these companies had these internal tools they had built for their data teams that were basically browser-based SQL editors that could be easily shared out with other folks. And so the, the sort of market, or the reason we started it from the market perspective was like, hey, this is a thing that was successful that we built. We've seen it being successful in other places. Seems like there's a real hole here there's a kind of a new type of data team that's becoming more and more popular. They don't have the tools, like dedicated tools for them. Let's go try to build it and see what happens. And so in that sense, it was like some market validation of sorts. 
um, that we had seen from these other internal tools that were doing similar stuff to what we had built. To the question of like, why did I, why was I involved in it? Um, yeah, the, the, the like, you, go, you go from enterprise <laughs> to a tiny startup. I mean, the, the honest, so I am not, I am not from California. Uh, I did not grow up thinking <laughs> about startups. When I graduated from college, um, I did not even consider applying to various tech jobs. It was just not a world I was familiar with. When we were in Yammer after the acquisition, no part of me was like, and now it is time to start a company. There are some people in, in San Francisco, for instance, who like, that is sort of a lifelong aspiration. I never had any of that. Yeah. But the two other folks I started it with uh, were folks who are more familiar with that ecosystem. And, and they weren't people who were like, my dream in life is to start a company. But they were people who saw a problem and their instinct was, hey, this thing seems to work. What if we built a company around it? Well, my instinct was like, thing seems to work. That's cool. Uh, the, the idea of like, what about a company? I was like, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. But we ended up kind of having conversations together and it became just like an opportunity. They were like, you know, do we want to do this? And my view of it was, I was a data person. Uh, data people typically are not early hires at startups. There's not really anything for a data person to do as a founder, much less even as like employee 20. Uh, like you typically get hired in the first few dozen people at best, not the first person or, or being a founder. And so it was like, this is my chance to see what it's like. What other time will I have to do it? Uh, I'm not going to get hired as a small startup. This might be fun. Sure. What do I have to lose? Uh, and I think this is, you know, Silicon Valley for better or for worse gives you the ability to do that where you can tell people, hey, I'm going to go leave and start a company. And they're not like, you're crazy. They're like, here's some money. Go for it. Uh, and so you can do it in a somewhat risk-free way. And that's that's one of the, you know, it's just a, a part of the Silicon Valley kind of culture that is very unique to Silicon Valley. Uh, and something that that you know I was lucky enough to to kind of fall into. It is. It's also a mindset, but I would say the culture and mindset has changed a lot in the last year. So let let's go back from the Microsoft and the founding of Mode. Mm -hmm. Fast forward ten almost ten years. So we're at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023. Okay, in March, Silicon Valley Bank collapse. I mean, I remember actually going to the Bay Area in December and I was like, everyone feels depressed, mass tech layoffs. So Mode has their short list of who might we want to partner with or merge with. ThoughtSpot has a short list. What were you looking for and how has it played out? Can we share the secret? Well, I mean, yeah. And like, we weren't, we weren't like out looking in that sense. It was, it was, you know, I think, Every company always says, when you start a company, you're always like, we want it to be big. We're an IPO or bust, blah, blah, blah. Like that is that is the line that you have to give because it's the line everybody expects. And you can't say like, our goal is to be acquired by whatever. Like that's, and then you can't think that way. You can't think like, if you chase an acquisition, it won't work out. You basically chase to build a big business. Every company does that. That's true for mode. Every company also kind of like, is always thinking a little bit about like, well, but what are also other options? Like not what are other options to pursue, but you always have some idea of like, if we were to get acquired, if it was an exit, what would that look like? Who would that be? What would make sense? Like, it's, it's just, that's the, the way you have to think about this stuff. And so we weren't, we weren't like out being like, all right, let's go, let's go chase two or three people and see if they'll buy us. Like, that's not how it works. But certainly, you know, you kind of have a, a running tally of sorts in your head of like the people that you like working with that you think would make sense versus the ones that you're like, I would never touch. For us, the, the place that we were in was we had built a tool. Mode was always focused very much on like technical data teams. It was focused on analysts and things like that. 
over time, we knew we had to become more of a traditional BI tool in the sense where we had to sell to lines of business. We had to build kind of like checkboxy BI features, uh, various dashboarding and alerting and all that kind of stuff that like every BI tool has that, that if you want to replace, you know, Power BI or Tableau or Click or MicroStrategy or whatever, you got to have all these different things that people will pay for. It's a very, very long list. Um, and so we were basically comfortable saying, yeah, we can kind of build that over time. We have this, this stable customer base of folks that we can sell to, to technical data teams. It's continuing to grow. A lot of companies would buy mode alongside the existing BI tools that they had, and then we can kind of expand into that over time. And, and there was a model there that was, that was really working. What happened in 2023 wasn't, it was like, oh my God, we got to go find, a, find an escape hatch. It was that suddenly companies were, instead of being comfortable buying two things, we're much more like, hey, we really want to consolidate around one thing or like we're not trying to buy, you know, uh, a tool for a data team and a tool for everybody else. We're like, we need to buy one thing. And so that that put a lot of pressure on the idea of like, all right, we really got to think about what is our more general BI strategy uh, quickly um, where the, the like we can be a coexistence model for a while. Suddenly customers didn't want the coexistence thing nearly as much. And so we were like, all right, we really have to be, building a BI tool here truly as well. And that was where, that was when, when ThoughtSpot first reached out was actually, we were kind of in that state and it was like, actually, okay, this conversation, you know, you get a lot of people reaching out over the course of a startup's life. And most of the time you're kind of like, yeah, we'll talk later, whatever. It doesn't really go anywhere. And when ThoughtSpot reached out, we were like, actually, this is a conversation we're taking because of exactly what you said. Like y'all were kind of under the same, somewhat of the same pressure, but from the opposite direction of like, all right, how do we help the data teams? There's more pressure on consolidation. We need to find something that helps the data teams. We were like, there's some pressure for consolidation. We have to build BI. We know what that looks like. It'll take a long time. We can keep kind of doing that, but it's a long road. Wait, here's an option of like potentially saying like, we can have the best of the BI world and the data team world all at once. And obviously like, you know, there's a lot of other considerations that go into that. But that to me was really the thing that was compelling was, we knew we were always on a slow road to BI. The urgency of that road was like increasing because of the change in the market. We still knew we could, it was a path we felt like we could walk, but it was a path that would be steeper than, it got steeper basically in 2023, just because the the timing of, of you know, people, people were not as comfortable with like sort of two things. And so it's just like, oh, we got to really figure some of the stuff faster. And so then then it was like this opportunity came up that was like, actually, here's a way to figure it out really, really fast uh, where we can only have both those things all at once. Yeah. Yeah. I like it for delighting the business users and elevating the analysts. Um, seems like the best of both worlds to me. All right. We're going to do a hard yeah. pivot, Ben. Lightning Kay. round. When, okay. So when you first left college, mm. what did you want to be? Uh, I really had no idea. I was probably split between... Like I said, sort of econ grad school stuff. I was like into the kind of macro econ stuff. I thought that was sort of fun in like a very sad way. So it would have been some sort of economic policy thing, or I thought it would be fun to work as a in like the front office of a sports team, which is still a thing that I would oh, think would sound fun. fun. Uh, which isn't that? That's actually kind of like an analytical job. So that's actually not. It wasn't like oh, yes, I was going to be a, a physicist <laughs> on a nuclear submarine. It was like no, that's actually kind of kind of what this job is in a way. We're, you know, selling software and not trying to win championships, yeah. but hey, kind of same, same, but different. There you go. Original Moneyball. Favorite yeah. activity when you're not working with data? I play baseball. Uh, so, you know, that, that's probably the top um, to me. Like, so I pitch 
that's that's the the most fun thing in the world is pitching when you have decent stuff. Uh, and so, you know, that the frequency with which I have decent stuff is something that has gone down over time. Uh, but the moments that you do, it's it's nothing like it. Oh, there you go. I was a catcher. Softball. There you go. Nice. So um, fill in the blank. Data is? Data is, I don't know. I, this is this is a weird answer. I've like also given that one of the more recent blog posts was like how data needs to be boring. I think it can be fun. And I think like there is a, a need of like, all right, uh, part of this is where I, I'm like working on a presentation right now that has required me to do a bunch of sort of weird analysis of something that has no real business like this is not of any particular business import, uh, but it's kind of like answering weird questions. And to me, that is the ultimate, that is the reason I got into the whole data world in the first place is to answer like kind of fun questions that are, that are just like, I wonder if there's sort of a data version of like the, the XKCD, what if thing where it's like, what would happen if, you know, all of the concrete in the world liquefied immediately? Would, would we all like, how would, what would happen? Um, there's like a data version of that to me of like, asking weird questions and trying to figure them out. And so I think, yeah, it can be, it can be fun when you're asking the right questions. It is fun. Let's be more emphatic okay. there. All right. How about a song that pumps you up? <laughs> a song that pumps me up. I have been listening to kind of, this is not a, I don't know if this pumps me up. There's a song I've been listening to like on repeat recently. Uh, it's called Labor by Paris Paloma. It's it's like an anti-pump up song. It's like a, about a woman who's going to, like abandon her evil husband. Uh, but it, it has a very oh. kind of pump up vibe to it. Uh, and it's been, okay. it's, it's, we, we might have to preview it before it's, it's, adding it to our data chief plan. It's good. It's good. It's, it's not, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's been the thing that's okay. Uh, rising quickly in my Spotify wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> no explanation needed. Yeah. Um, the how about the blog post or blog title that got you in the most trouble? Uh, that's pretty easy. I the, I think it was the how snowflake fails. So I had this series of, yep. of basically posts that were like <laughs> the, the intent was these are companies that are are doing really well. There are companies that everybody kind of assumes are going to be the winners in their space, and it was so it was like if we were to imagine a scenario in which it doesn't work out, how might we get there? Not saying it's going to fail. Um, so I did one about DBT and one about Fivetran uh, as well. And so the first one I did was on Snowflake and the title of it was How Snowflake Fails. And Snowflake folks uh, initially, I think it, it just like, it was triggering in the sense where it was initially perceived as like a prediction of that. And then it, people seem to be it's, like, oh, it's actually it's triggering. Fine. But yeah, I, the I image was triggering the melting snowman. And I picture you and a Gartner ombudsman and how that conversation would have gone. So one you final know, question. <laughs> it's OK. Yeah, we won't go there. Fair. One final question, depending on your mood, either something that has totally made you laugh out loud or what are you most grateful for in the moment? One of the things that just recently, Cindy, both of you and I were, were in India. Um, for a ThoughtSpot annual, the sort of annual kickoff event uh, for ThoughtSpot. I am grateful for that opportunity, I think. I like, And not just because it was like, okay, go to India and meet these folks. The brief moments that you do get to travel and see people and talk to people from different backgrounds and stuff like that, it is remarkably eye-opening about all of the different things that go on in the world when you actually spend a little bit of time halfway in somebody else's shoes. And so I am 
I think, grateful for that opportunity to go on that trip and, and sort of the opportunities I've had to do a handful of things like that, where I think just the amount of perspective that you get spending a little bit of time somewhere else around other people living the life that they kind of live goes a tremendously long way and hopefully being able to understand the world and, and appreciate the world a little bit more than, than you would otherwise. Yeah. And I loved uh, that you shopped for traditional attire on Commercial Street mm. and that you went out, you and Sarah went out and got real coffee and chai from the local vendors. So Ben, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.